Hello, all you leadership educators out there, and welcome to Real Leadership for Real People, the NASPA SLP KC podcast, where we amplify true stories of leadership education. I'm your host, Kathy Guthrie, and I serve as a faculty member in the higher education program at Florida State University. And I'm your co-host, Cameron Beatty. I also serve as a faculty member in the higher education program at Florida State University. We are so excited um, to be joined by our special guests, uh, Dr. Maritza Torres and Dr. Jennifer Batchelder, who will be sharing their thoughts on Latinx leadership. But first, let's do a quick check-in on what's going on. What's on your mind lately, Kathy? Oh, my goodness. Fall. We are recording this at the end of January, and I know when everyone- July, July. Oh my gosh, did July get January? Jeez, where is my mind? Yes, July, thank you. Um, the end of July, and when people will be listening to this, we will be in the throes of fall. And right now, just in this space of trying to figure out, right, as we all are, what is happening Absolutely. and how do we navigate navigate everything that's coming towards us? So yeah, what about you? Yeah, I'm, I'm the same way. I've, I'm trying to commit to myself to not overcommit this fall. So I've been trying to figure <laughs> out strategies right now to as I go into the next month. It's like, how do I say no? How do I say yes with intention? Yeah. Uh, how do I think about uh, managing my time? Um, and, and not sometimes the yes comes from a place of not wanting to disappoint. And right. just really thinking about more critically about that is something that's been on my mind here lately. Right. And how that self-care is so important as we all engage in this work. Well, thank you for that. So let's get into today's topic, shall we? Um, as Cameron mentioned, we have amazing guests with us today. Dr. Maritza Torres, who's at the University of Central Florida and Dr. Jenny Batchelder, who recently graduated from Florida State University. And she is searching, right, Jenny? <laughs> searching for a job currently. When this airs, she will have a job. I'm going to claim Yes, that. when this airs, she will have a job. But thank, thank you. you. <laughs> yes, we're positively putting that out into the universe. But thank you both for joining us. Pleasure. I'm excited to be here. So thank you. Awesome. So. Just to help our audience get to know you a little better, we prepared a couple of questions to get to know you better. So are you ready to get started? Mm -hmm. Let's do it. So first, <laughs> what song do you love to sing when you're alone in the car? I can start. Um, anything from the In the Heights soundtrack. Um, mm -hmm. And then I'll piggyback that off also with Hamilton, but In the Heights was my first one. <laughs> yeah, I've definitely been listening to some In the Heights a whole lot this summer. Um, I honestly, uh, Selena Quintanilla, either Como La Flor or Bidi Bidi Bum Bum is like a CD that is starting to skip that I've played so many times in my car that I'm just singing all the time. <laughs> I love it. I love it. Maritza, you are the one who got me into Hamilton. I don't know if you remember that. <laughs> I do. Yes. It got me through the dissertation. So I think I a little acknowledgement, like a thank you to Lin-Manuel Miranda in my dissertation. <laughs> I love it. I love it. I yes, love it. It's so on much. your dissertation. <laughs> <laughs> All right. The second question, if you could eat only one food or meal for the rest of your life, what would it be? As a proud Chicagoan, 
it has to be pizza and not deep dish because that's for the tourists. No, we don't, that's no, uh, thin crust, but I think pizza and because pizza is so versatile that you can just have it any other way. So that would be me. <laughs> I think I'm going to go with uh, enchiladas. My, both my grandma and my aunt does like a staple for us. And I'm now I'm dreaming about them right now. <laughs> I'm excited about it. All right, last question. And it's kind of on brand for the podcast here. Who or what first sparked your interest in leadership? For me, um, it actually was my friend back when I was at DePaul University for my undergrad. Uh, long story short, we were having elections for our multicultural Greek Council. I just became a member of my fraternity, Alpha Phi Lambda Incorporated, and newly inducted. And then I was in a meeting and my friend David next to me was like, Maritza, says, do you have a leadership position yet? I'm like, no. So he just nominated me for a vice president position with our multicultural Greek Council. I was three weeks in, brand new. And I ended up getting it. And so that was to me my first introduction because I did not know at that time as an undergrad, I was capable of holding such a title, if anything, of leadership and got me to where I am today. I love that story. Um, so for me, I think back to actually when I was in middle school, we started a new school that didn't have any trees or plants. And I asked, are they going to plant anything? And the school didn't have any budget for it. And I don't know how, but I found a grant to apply for in middle school. And I wrote an application for it, got it. And then I got to start a student organization on campus. I never would have thought I was going to start a student organization, um, but I couldn't, I didn't want to, I couldn't, and I didn't want to plant all of these trees that were going to come in on trucks and flowers and things around campus by myself. So that was a really cool, unexpected role that I stepped into that people started recognizing my leadership. Um, and then I remember, you know, in as a new student orientation leader, getting some training on it. And then I do talk in my narrative about how I specifically wanted to go into leadership and leadership education for my dissertation. So those are some little milestones that I kind of got sparked on leadership. Mm, thank you so much. You know, it, I think when we're able to reflect on those moments in time or those people, it really does. It, it makes our narrative and our history come alive. So as you know, this season on the NASPA SLPKC podcast, we're focusing on socially just and culturally relevant leadership learning. And both of you wrote narratives um, that's, that are highlighted in an upcoming book that Cameron and I um, got to co-author called Operationalizing Culturally Relevant Leadership Learning. <laughs> so can you briefly describe, both of you, your narratives to give our listeners a sense of what they can expect from your piece and how it all connects together? Yeah, so um, for me, this is Jenny. Um, I started, um, actually, um, was invited to join the narrative, writing a narrative, and I got so reflective and excited about this concept, um, or talking about my experiences engaging with the, the concepts within, um, culturally relevant leadership learning, um, that my story just got really long, and I actually broke it down into two narratives, so you'll see in the in the book that I've got um, one narrative that really focuses on the 
um, the dimensions of identity, capacity, and efficacy. And I'm telling my story of how, you know, thinking about CRLL, I started to kind of get a permission to explore leadership from a cultural sense and even thinking about, um, you know, my foundations in my culture, especially being, um, quote unquote, half. <laughs> I am Chicana, Latina on my mom's side, American um, and American, <laughs> white on my dad's side. And I didn't know if I was enough um, Latina enough to be speaking about um, my culture and my cultural approach. But I really felt like it gave me a stronger sense of my approach to leadership. So it gave me that efficacy um, as I was gaining more insight on the, you know, capacity and um, building my identity <laughs> within it. Um, so that was really empowering. And my um, second narrative really focuses on the dimension or the um, domains, the five domains. And so I kind of talk about how um, as I dove into my dissertation, I you know, challenge some ideas of, of leadership, leadership identity development, um, because of my experiences with my cultural identity and the, you know, and the domains um, and how they kind of interwoven um, as a scholar, uh, as I started developing my research. And I'm continuing to do so. I'll tell you all a little bit more about that later. <laughs> and mine centered on the piece of testimonial. And so some background on testimonial. Uh, it is basically not in a culture or traditional way of sharing stories that also creates community and opportunities for liberation. And I ran into testimonial by doing research on Latinx leadership, but also trying to figure out ways in which, culturally relevant ways in which uh, Latinx students and people in general can share their stories authentically within a community that they feel safe, where they feel heard and their voices are affirmed. And so I ran across testimonial as a methodology. And while it's still, it's getting there actually, being recognized as a qualitative methodology of working on that, that is my next goal, <laughs> um, is to contribute to that scholarship. But I also blended it in the way that talked about culturally relevant leadership learning and how, especially in the context of Latinx students, how we can empower them to share their experiences and backgrounds and affirm them that are not necessarily affirmed or heard in the traditional sense of what leadership is, especially within a westernized individualistic culture, right? And so I wanted to share that piece of testimonial. I thought it would be a beautiful way for, for I guess, people who are not, don't necessarily identify as Latinx to get an understanding and why storytelling and sharing is such a personal and I would say liberating experience for people of color. And so this is kind of my way of kind of weaving in the cultural relevant leadership learning piece into testimonial. And so luckily I was able to do that and use it as a methodology for my research. And then as I alluded to earlier, I kind of want to explore testimonial, expand on the narratives that I wrote for this chapter and kind of see like, what is it that we can do to explore and share the stories of Latinx students faculty and staff within higher education, because I think right now that's what's really needed. Maritza, you know, I know that testimonial has been a big part when you graduated from Florida State. I did not say that in your, in your bio, but while you were at Florida State, you created a course, which is so incredible because then Jenny went on <laughs> to teach it for many years. But can you talk about how you incorporated testimonial into that course? I think that is brilliant and something we all should be doing more of. <laughs> yes. Oh my goodness. My baby. Yes. 
Um, probably one of the proudest moments in my professional career was creating the Latinx leadership course at Florida State University that I was also able to, to bring at the University of Central Florida. And so um, how we use testimonial in the Latinx leadership class is students are asked to write their testimonial in the frame of Latinx leadership it's in the 10 principles of Latino leadership by Juana Borda. So I asked them to reflect on their leadership practices if those practices align that are outlined in the Juana Borda's book, if they align with their personal or professional experiences with leadership. And if they don't, what are some of those practices that they wanna further develop or acquire? And so it was a way for them to write a narrative for themselves. It was very informal and reflective in nature which a lot of the students at first were kind of confused because they were like, what about APA? What about if I don't talk about this? Do I need to cite this? And I'm like, no, no, no. I just want to know about your narrative, your story, and how it aligns with the Latino leadership principles that we talked about in our class. And so a lot of the students in their testimonial, you can think of it as a leadership philosophy, talked about um, how you know they were a leader in the sense of their family. They were the oldest sibling. They held a lot of the weight of their family um, some talked about their community service with, within their local community or within their church. And some even talked about their leadership experiences at, at their university as being the only person of color in their organization and how, in a sense, they looked at that as a way to kind of be a sphere of influence for future students of color to also join their organization. So they're very well-rounded. Um, it was kind of hard at first to take their minds off of the formal paper-like context of the assignment because it was an assignment, but um, I really enjoyed just having them take a minute to reflect and just write and answer these prompts. And this has been such a tremendous um, part of this course. It's really neat. Some students, yes, do struggle because they're used to the typical <laughs> approach to the classroom, but you know, I got the honor of taking over this course. And um, since then I've been able to read some of how these narratives kind of unfold and they are gorgeous stories. They're not just reflections, thinking put on paper. No, they deeply, I had one that was about fish and chocolate, like the smell of fish and chocolate and how they use that narrative to like really tell how their culture applied to leadership. It was beautiful. Um, and I've even, some, you know, and I know Maritza's had some of these too, but we've had students turn in um, other artistic forms. So they'll, I've done, students have done the poetic version presentations of it. The, um, I've had photos, photo collages, um, music, really neat um, renditions of storytelling outside of an academic paper to really get them in their own culture, in their own practice, um, telling stories. It was beautiful. Thank you for putting that all together, Marissa, Dr. Torres. It's been such a pleasure. Absolutely. Um, and, and thank you both again for your contributions to, to the book, because I think you both get at the how when thinking about, well, culturally relevant, what is the, what is the how do I do this, right? And I, I appreciate both of your narratives at, at getting at the how. And the next question I think aligns with, we want to hear your testimonials, right? Like really thinking critically about um, if you could share with us your lived experience, both professional and in, in, in your own personal lives, how has, um, leadership shaped how you really think about your own practice, your own leadership learning, what you bring to both the classroom, to your professional practice, to your research. Tell us about your journey. We want to hear a little bit more about your testimonials, your lived experiences. 
that's going to be a wow. I love that question. And I'm trying to think of the most succinct way to answer it. But I think one of the best places for me to answer that is representation matters. I know for me as an undergraduate student, I had the privilege of having faculty that looked like me. And that was honestly because my minor was in Latin American studies and Spanish. So I lucked out. And I know that's not the reality for a lot of students, especially those of Latinx descent. And I didn't really realize that or the importance of that until I stepped into the classroom and I started teaching and I had students come up to me telling me like, you're the only Latinx professor I have at this entire university. And that, while that is also a great honor, kind of scary to create this kind of sort of pressure and weight on your shoulders. Cause you, of course, if you're the only one, you want to, you know, be a great example. And so I think more so when it comes to my lived experiences being a first generation Latina woman from Chicago. So being growing up in an urban diverse environment, I just wanna make sure that I pay it forward. Um, when I think about my teaching and my advising and working with students, my number one goal is that I'm always paying it forward and I'm always giving them the benefit of the doubt because from my lived experiences, I, as a first generation student, I didn't know how to navigate college. I did a lot of that on my own. I asked a lot of questions. Um, and yes, I've gained navigational capital because of that, but um, I wanna be that resource for students. I wanna be that one faculty member or staff member where, oh, Dr. Torres knows about that or Dr. Torres sees something in me. And so if she says I can do this and I can, you know, then I believe her. And so for me, in terms of how I teach and how I live in this profession, and my demeanor as a faculty member is I just try to be as transparent as possible, vulnerable and sharing my stories and also just pay it forward to those that kind of paved the way for me. Um, so that's basically, in short, obviously there's more, but those are like the key points, at least in my lived experience so far. Yeah, I have, I mean, I have a lot of similar experiences and um, echoes of what Marissa had said. Um, you know, when I started learning about leadership more concretely um, from an academic sense. Uh, I still found myself challenged to align with it because it seemed um, I just didn't quite align with my regular practice that I felt like I was doing. I was never positionally oriented. Um, I actually never even got a position like a major position of leadership, even actually until I became doc chair in the higher ed student affairs program here at Florida State. Um, and I really just saw my role as being engaged and supporting my community. And so, um, you know, as I started to understand leadership from the cultural sense, uh, especially aligning with one of Ordes's principles of Latino leadership, which I highly recommend take a look at, uh, you know, I felt it was so much easier to see myself as a leader, as a Latina leader, um, as a Chicana leader, um, no matter where I'm, where I'm at. So whether I'm working with other Chicanas, Latinas, our Latino community or Latinx community, uh, or with um, general <laughs> student populations, especially at a predominantly white institution, um, I still saw myself approaching my work as a, um, Chicana scholar, um, as a Chicana leadership educator. Um, and, you know, the COL framework also gave me language for what I was somewhat already doing, 
um, you know, keeping that historical concept, keeping the um, each each of the different domains involved um, in my mind as I'm approaching design and um, execution of my work. Uh, so it was really neat to have a framework for what I was doing so I could explain it even more clearly. And I think that it also helped me, um, taking this cultural approach, helped me to understand leadership basically in alignment with the word community <laughs> uh, or civic engagement. Um, because uh, like Maritza said, the Latin community is not um, individualistic. It's much more community oriented. We really think about supporting each other even before ourselves, so that we can have a collective um, accomplishment. And that's really how I approach my work in leadership. And um, as a scholar practitioner, uh, I see my role as a leadership educator, no matter where I am in the field of student affairs, um, whether that's you know, looking at strengths, weaknesses, opportunities, and threats, or, uh, or specifically doing research on Latinx students, you know, whatever it is in the, in the realm or specifically or outside of leadership. I think that it applies to everything that we're doing. Jenny, I so appreciate that in saying how you feel that you're a leadership educator, no matter where you're at, or your function area in student affairs. And I think that is critical in thinking through how we are engaging students in leadership learning. And that goes along with, you know, our next question really about, can you share, and some of, both of you have started to kind of talk about this, but can you share what from outside of leadership education specifically has informed your thinking and approach to this work? That's a deep question. Go ahead. I don't know if I'm gonna answer it right, but I think something outside of formal education that's informed my work as a leadership educator would be, right, okay, would be um, seeing my niece develop and grow into, she's currently taking the bar exam. So she is on my mind today and tomorrow. Um, my oldest niece is the second in my family. I was the first. Uh, to get a degree and especially in higher education. And I think a lot of this was, I didn't realize this until I got older and she told me, she, I was role modeling the way for her. And I didn't realize that. And in a sense, that is leadership that I unknowingly uh, was being watched and observed by my niece about how I approached certain situations, how I took part of my educational journey, how I approached my career, and but also how I was a leader in a sense for my family. And then seeing her kind of kind of do the same things but make it her own kind of just made me realize that yes, I know all the theoretical frameworks. Yes, I've studied this, yes, this is my job, but also this is just how I live my life. <laughs> and um, the fact that my family not in a sense, traditional family, like mom, dad, parents, but the fact that the youngest siblings in my family see that um, kind of informs my practice and being and how leadership observation in a sense is also really important. So even if I take off like the hat of Dr. Torres, when it's just Maritza, the Latina, as an aunt, as a sister, as a daughter, um, that those identities are also relevant in terms of like, how I lead not only in my professional career, but also in my life. That's how I approach the question. Not sure if that's what you're going for, but that's what's stuck in my mind. 
I don't know if Jenny, if you have. Yeah, no, I think, you know, outside of higher ed and outside of even academia, I think um, when I'm, when I found myself reflecting on leadership in the and my leadership identity and my own identity, which informs my leadership identity. Um, I think that's really what led me to generativity uh, as my topic for my dissertation. So generativity is a concept that's associated with aging. <laughs> uh, so we, so I kind of took it out of out of that realm and really instead of applying it to older, um, I applied it throughout the lifespan and uh, really thinking about how we're being generative and supporting everybody around us, whether they're older or younger, because you can be generative um, supporting your parents, especially right now with technology <laughs> and the pandemic, we switched into everything remote. I had to help my, my um, parents with some of those aspects, uh, but you know, how you're sharing information with others um, outside being generative and um, in a community oriented approach uh, is, how, is how I kind of think about it outside. So I've seen that, you know, even when I was little supporting my little brother, <laughs> learning math in elementary school um, and how I've learned from other people and sought out support from other people. So not just giving, but also receiving um, leadership from others and guidance and being a part of that process, uh, no matter what role I'm in. So those are some things outside of academia. Wonderful. Um, I really appreciate that. So could you both talk to us about how you see your particular narrative um, as a piece of practical scholarship, which can be applied to address, you know, various crises on campus and maybe where you see that work going forward? I think for, so I did break mine again into two sections and I think that it is important to first start with your own identity. Um, whatever your identity, culture, cultural abilities, all of the things, thinking about who you are and then putting that in the context of your leadership practice is, is really important. So um, yes, we're, it, Yes, the question was about crisis, but I think wherever you are, thinking about who you are and how you show up in your leadership practice is essential. So you can do that today, right now, <laughs> thinking about those pieces. And then, um, you know, as a crisis comes up, thinking about what your what what you what you know and how you can move forward. Um, with the community involved is my approach, really thinking about those aspects. Um, and yes, when you're thinking about large groups of people, you can't just think about yourself and what you would do and what you need, but what everybody needs. And especially thinking of the CRLL model, you need to think about the um, all of the cultural um, considerations. And I know that it seems like a lot, but if you um, put this practice um, put these components into practice regularly, it becomes more innate. So um, start getting familiar with it. Start start figuring out how you can register seeing and, um, and including when you don't see them, these different aspects of CRLL so that you can respond to crisis, whatever the situation is. I agree with a lot of what Jenny said. And I think the only piece I would add that correlates with my narrative is stories and testimonial, right? And so a lot of it, especially with crises, especially things with student unrest and activist movements, 
people just want to be heard. They want to be affirmed. They want to be heard. They want to share their story. And so I think in a sense, it's just being aware of that, but also knowing that a group, whether it's any identity-based groups are not a monolith. We, and especially when it comes to individual students, they each have their own experiences, stories, and backgrounds. And yes, it will take time to learn and to understand everyone's story, but just to have that awareness and not have a one-size-fits-all solution. And so I think, honestly, it's just to listen. I think that's the biggest piece, just to listen to the stories, listen to, you know, what is it that's making them upset? Why are we having these issues of unrest, especially on college campuses? And I think all in all, it's just giving them an opportunity to sit down and just share their story. I appreciate that. Thank you. And, and I think it's so true. One size does not fit all. But as educators, it is something that I was thinking about. Then how do we incorporate these approaches on campus? Right. And yes, in different settings, we have to have, you know, it needs to reach more people or, you know, we all have these different contexts and pressures that we're in. Do you have, you know, anything that you're thinking of, both of you, about how to incorporate this on campus into ideas that can move it forward? I have one idea and I've actually seen it happen. So UCF is an HSI and um, we got the HSI designation in 2019. So we're still new in that sense. But I think one of the things that were really cool is that we also have a new president. And so uh, who also started in 2019. Um, and one of the things he did was he did listening sessions with all the identity-based faculty staff associations on our campus. And so the fact that we were, and I was on the board of our Latino faculty staff association. And so the opportunity, we had an hour with the president who wanted to talk about what are, what are the Latinx faculty and staff goals on campus and how does this affect our students? And so the opportunity, the fact that he gave us that opportunity, um, we do have African-American, we have pride faculty and staff associations that each had an hour with the president got his attention and we were able to openly talk to him about, hey, you just got here. This is where we at. This is where we want to go. And this is how we think he can help you. So again, I think that whole idea of sharing stories and experiences um, was really appreciative and, you know, kind of gave us hope, you know, for what's to come, especially for um, a new president who has new ideas and who's just coming in. So that is just one tiny example that I've shared and saw actually happen. That's really great to hear it kind of executed in, in actual practice. That's really neat. I think um, I know this past year in meetings, you know, throughout the year uh, with the vice president of student affairs office, we've been trying to think about a model to kind of follow, to kind of give guidance to how we're making decisions. Right now, I'm also job searching and I've seen a lot of DEI roles, but also um, uh, diversity, equity, inclusion, or belonging and inclusion. Um, roles uh, and whether or not that's the role that's part of the expectation, whether or not you're considering these pieces. So both collectively, whatever your role is, I think these different aspects are some things that you can bring into your own practice as a student affairs practitioner. So thinking about, um, you know, what is what is the history of your department? How is the organizational structure really thinking about thinking about the cultural pieces? What who's being left out? Who are we aligning with and who are we not aligning with? Um, what how is our how is our compositional diversity making making up the representation of the students that we're representing? Um, 
How are our behaviors aligning with our action, um, our, our words? Um, so are we saying things or are we actually enacting them? And then how are the students actually feeling? So thinking about that physiological aspect, how are the students actually receiving what we're talking about? Um, yes, we might be saying we're doing something, we might be putting something into action, but we really need to reach out to the students to see how it's actually being received. Um, and thinking about those pieces as we are um, trying to respond to different challenges throughout the year, um, whether they're day-to-day -day practices or something extreme that happened unexpectedly. And I think that's a great segue into our last question um, that we have for you. We only have a few minutes left, but we really would love to hear your thoughts on what really gives you hope, a lot of energy about the future of culturally relevant leadership learning. I know you the both students. alluded to, yeah, the students. The students, Absolutely. I didn't even interrupt Cameron, but man, we have some really cool students um, that really care and are really engaged and really want to make change. And I have never seen such a motivated group. Like even when I think of myself as a student, I'm just like, wow, <laughs> they already are coming into our universities with ideas, have created nonprofits, have done tons of community service. Like they are not here to play. And so for me, it's definitely the students. Yeah, I, I love that. Definitely some students. I even think about some elders that I've been hearing narrative stories, testimonials from who have been telling me about, you know, back in the 70s, things that they were doing um, and how they create work to create change, started the first Chicano studies program at different institutions and things like that. And how the students today are really bringing, bringing that, that spirit back to the campus, um, really being empowered to, to create change um, in, in their own identity approaches to being empowered by, I think that we're in a really neat space right now that, that we don't, aren't questioned as often, but some people are actually supportive of taking that approach. And I think that's giving us a really great space to continue moving forward um, with our work, um, supporting students, empowering students, um, and helping them to be engaged with, with their communities after, during and after graduation. Oh, thank you both so much. Dr. Marissa Torres, Dr. Jennifer Batchelder, thank you for your, just joining us, your time, energy, your narratives that you not only shared in the book that I hope everyone can engage with, but with us here today. So until then, leadership educators, keep it real out there. <laughs>